Ivy's Late Night. Angela Bofield comes from a musical family. Her 
Cuban-American father was a longshoreman and moonlighted as a singer. He performed with soul jazz legend Cannibal Adderley and bebop Afro-Cuban jazz pioneer Dizzy Gillespie. Here's a song I try from her second album, courtesy of Sony Music. Best I can for you, but it seems it's not enough, and you know I care even when you're not there. Welcome back to Irish Late Night. It's my pleasure to introduce the first of my three-part series of interviews with Angela Bofield. Uh, she and I spoke for about an hour, and frankly, I'm a huge fan, so I got uh, tongue-tied many times during this interview. We spoke about many topics, including her songwriting inspiration to her experience recovering from two strokes. In this first part, we're talking about her musical legacy. Well, welcome to the show. You know, um, I'm a huge fan, and we've been telling our audience that we're going to have you on the show playing lots of your songs. We just played your song from your first album entitled I Try, and I know you wrote this song when you were in your teens. Can you tell us a little bit about the crush that inspired you to write this song? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think of the first crush, a teenage angst, <laughs> inspired that song. <laughs> So how how did you react? Because you wrote that song when you were in your early teens. How did you react to Will Downing cover that song like 20 years after you recorded it? It's a beautiful version, but I'm just curious. I mean, here you were a teenage girl writing about the song Longing for a Man, and then Will Downing covers it. It's it's an incredible honor as a songwriter. I'd love to get your reaction to his recording. Yes, a beautiful a voice that Will Downing has, because uh, a beautiful version, too. I like it. <laughs> A man loves too, you know. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I love the universal appeal of that song, and and you know, a lot of people think of you as a vocalist and don't really uh, think of your songwriting skills. And you worked on your first two albums. You did so much songwriting. Can you tell us a little bit about your songwriting process? How that worked? Were the lyrics first, or the melody, or did they both come together? Well, first of all, I have a piano, right? I practice, you know, Beethoven, Bach, uh, Laquana, because uh, I fool around and the da 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 I had a nice chord I hit. I built it a song of that, <laughs> that chord. <laughs> and then you find that That's chord it. and the words start to come? Okay. Yes, And then yes. 
So when you wrote The Moon in the Sky, how did that come together? Because that is like one of my all-time favorite songs, and you wrote the comp- you did the composition, Under the Moon and Over the Sky, excuse me. Uh, that song mm-hmm. is just so beautiful. Was that... Did that take a long time? Did you write it in one day? I mean, so many songwriters no, either take years no, or days. Uh, no, I uh, attended Manhattan Music School in New York City and uh, mm-hmm. assignment uh, studying odd meters. <laughs> really, uh, assignment, uh, homework. <laughs> that uh, write the song. Um, <laughs> I, lo- I hope you got an A on that because I would give you an A for oh, writing yeah. that song. <laughs> I want to talk about this magical time in New York City during the 70s when you were, as you just said, you were going to the Manhattan School of Music. You then went to Hunter College and studied, uh, I think you got your degree in voice. But you were coming up with all these other amazing talents, including uh, Nat Early Jr., Valerie Simpson, and, of course, our mentor, uh, Luther Vandross. So uh, describe what that was like. How, how was that growing up in the 70s with all this incredible music and talent around you? Awesome, because uh, I joined the All-City Chorus as a teenager, also the All-City Orchestra. I met uh, Nat Adderley and uh, Buddy Williams. Uh, I grew up, uh, uh, eventually, uh, Santana uh, started out. All the musician friends played uh, the first demo I have. It turned out that Buddy Williams uh, also attended Manhattan School of Music, and then another friend of yours, a flutist, I believe, uh, Dave Valentin, uh, steered you towards oh, GRP. Yeah. That was a jazz label. So here you were. You have been a professional. You've been a professional performer since the age of 16. You're writing these wonderful compositions, like I try, as we said, because of your crush and, and your homework assignment of Under the Moon and Over the Sky. And now you're um, auditioning for a record label. How did that come together? How 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 quickly did you did they see you and did you get signed to G, uh, GRP? Well, Dave and Valentine, a friend of mine, because uh, I toured uh, a Latin jazz band, Ricardo Marrero, and uh, Dave and Valentine play flute. Oh, I miss him terrible. And uh, David told me, Oh yeah, I signed at a record company. A GLP, I asked David, uh, asked him to uh, interest as a vocalist, you know, and uh, Dave Valentine asked uh, Dave Grusin, uh, Larry Rosen, uh, interested, yes, come over to the office and uh, already wrote six songs and uh, audition, you know, or play the piano or song or sing, signed, uh, uh, interested uh, a month later and uh, boom. And then the next thing you knew, this time I'll be sweeter for fans was being heard all over the radio. I mean, that is considered probably one of your early big successes. What was your reaction and your family's reaction to hearing you on the radio with that song back at that time? Well, told us the truth, a really great station back in the day, BLS Mm -hmm. and uh, Frankie Crocker, a DJ Envision my song over the radio, and uh, the first time I, I, I try and listen, oh, oh, oh thrilled, you know, oh, uh, that's a goal, you know. One day, uh, write a, a, a recording artist and uh, play a radio, you know. 
I love it. And I, I love the Latin fusion. Your mother was Puerto Rican, your father is Cuban. But when you listen to, like, the song Angel of the Night, you can't help but hear these uh, Latin musical overtones and undertones. And you just uh, told us about earlier how you came up in a Latin band. So, you know, when I think about the music industry today and how cookie-cutter it is and they kind of want to put you in one genre and not have you do a lot, Back then, you were really seemed to me to be very fluid with doing pop, soul, jazz, and having this kind of Latin sound. Was that something you fought for, or was that something that was encouraged on these first two albums? Yes, uh, really a lot of uh, creativity artists, you know, and uh, um, that's me, you know. <laughs> so you were one of the groundbreakers. For, I think you kind of opened the door for Gloria Estefan and the Estefans going to pop with Latin music because you were right before everyone doing, you know, really crossing over with musical genres. Yes, I'm very proud of that, you know. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I mean, your career is remarkable. And so now here you put, you have two albums with GRP, and then you moved to Arista with Clive Davis. I want to talk a little bit about what, uh, what changed in the recording process for you, and how was that different in that first time recording with Arista than in the two previous times with GRP? Well, uh, Clive Davis, very creative, you know, and respect my creativity, you know, musical, always. You know, suggestions, you know, for particular songs, uh, I like it, recorded. Though it involves them, a friend of the Bay Area, and a Clive Davis asked me, need a producer. What about Michael Norita Walden? And uh, two tales, uh, half Norita produced, and other half myself. No, I Great. mean, that was a really <laughs> successful partnership with Narita, Michael Walden. You recorded several yes. albums with him. And, you know, when I think back to that, it seems uh, he recorded Too Tough, uh, Tonight I Give In. Tell us about Too Tough, because that was totally a departure for you. I mean, that really was a much more up-tempo, kind of a different song. When he first approached you with that song, what, what, was, what was your reaction? Wow. I, I tell Clive Davis, Norita wrote me a hit. You knew it right from the start that that was going to be a big hit for you, which it ultimately yes. turned out to be. Yes. And how did you produce your your vocals? Because you have a three-and-a-half-octave range I read online, and it seems to me back in that time, uh, producers really built songs around vocalists like yourself and Phyllis Hyman and others, and it's changed today and I'm just curious how what was that experience like was he building the song around you or were you considered an instrument in the song how did how did the production go were you recording alone uh was he in the studio with you was it at night during the day tell us a little bit about the recording process uh I co-wrote a lot of songs together and now I respect my talent and still a friend of mine a neighbor really and feel good and, you know, decide together, you know. And it's so excited, a duet, knowing a, a duet to the Skaggs. Yeah, with Boss Skaggs, it's beautiful. I love that yeah. song. Yeah, the energy, you know, spiritual, very spiritual, you know. <laughs> Calm down. It comes and, you know. to this interview that he's just so playful. So what do you prefer, uh, recording or 
performing live? Well, less traveling, recording, you know, and uh, <laughs> that did <laughs> slow down a lot. I'm a, a grandmother now, a new job, <laughs> a lot a delightful. <laughs> Staying put, <laughs> I really uh, enjoy that. But now I uh, sing a, a children's songs. <laughs> you know, uh, oh, I love it. A really a great video. Grandchildren love to play animal crackers. No, no, animal. Oh, yeah, animal. Da, ding, 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 ding. Animal crossings. <laughs> I, I, I saw Animal Crossing. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> How lucky to have a grandmother like Angela Bofield to sing Animal Crossings to them. That's remarkable. Um, I love it. But you recorded a live album. It's the, your only record, live album, I believe. It's live from Manila. It's available on your website, Angela-Bofield.com. You recorded this before. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about it? This included a lot of your signature songs. And uh, had you traveled to the Philippines many times before and recorded there? Was there something special about that night that really stands out to you? Well, I love the Philippines. <laughs> I love it. The first time I go to the Philippines, as a manager, long flight, you know. Somebody meets yes, 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 a hundred people. <laughs> oh, what a welcome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. And were there other um, areas of the world that really followed you? I know, like, Luther had a huge fan base in the U.K. We would travel to the U.K. every year to do tours, and when we went down to South Africa, uh, he was in stadium. I'm wondering if there was a – did you receive a a warm welcome in other countries as well? Well, Japan is fun. Africa once, uh, Nigeria, uh, and uh, a favorite country, USA. <laughs> Mine too. I love it. I love your spirit. All right, well, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, Ms. Bofield is going to share, tell us a little bit about the people in her life that have been supporting her all these these past years after her stroke. But straight ahead, we're going to play another song uh, that Angela Bofield wrote. It's The Feelings Love. It's from her second album, Angel in the Night. We're going to continue with our interview with Angela Bofield. The Bronx-born singer-songwriter suffered two strokes, but neither stroke could take away her positive, humorous personality or her fighter spirit, which you obviously heard in our first part. You know, it's interesting to note that researchers from Finland found that if a stroke patient listens to music for a couple hours a day, their verbal memory and attention is better, and they have a more positive mood than patients who did not listen to anything. 
Angelo's fans also know that after she lost the ability to sing, she returned to the stage for the Angela Bofield experience, in which she skillfully narrated her life story with her band and other singers who sang her hit songs. Now we're going to continue on with our exclusive interview with Angela Bofield. You're a longtime advocate of living foods, raw, uncooked, organic, uh, vegetarian foods. I've read that in a lot of articles. You said it was partly due to your vocal training. Can you explain how your vocal training kind of inspired you to get on the raw and uncooked uh, organic vegetarian food kick? Well, uh, more energy. You know, traveling is so much. I need uh, energy. You know, uh, uh, lately drinking coffee. <laughs> yes, uh, first of all, I feel better, you know, eating it. But uh, now a, a, a more vegan, no and meat, juicing, and, you know. I read that you love carrot, carrot juice is one of your favorites. Are you still juicing? Because you've been juicing for like 30 years, right? You were ahead of the trend with juicing. Yeah, um, don't much so much now because uh, I don't cook myself no more, my daughter no more, you know. So now let's talk a little work. bit about your stroke. So you suffered you you suffered two strokes. First one was, I believe, mm-hmm. in 2006. Can you tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. the symptoms you were having before the stroke? Well, one Sunday evening, my uh, my daughter and me uh, going out a friend at dinner, and after driving back, and uh, all of a sudden a pop of the brain, you know, pop, and uh, I don't talk, you know, uh, hard to talk, and uh, I don't walk, you know, and uh, my daughter, God bless her, a cold ambulance, and uh, rushed to the hospital, and uh, a doctor told me I have a stroke, oh my God, and, uh, you know, a six-month uh, therapy, you know, uh, physical therapy, and, uh, you know, uh, again, to talk again, and walk again, a user came, but uh, refused it by an electric chair because I use it and lose it, you know, and uh, that's it. Ooh, that's scary. I bet. I know I found Luther after he had a stroke. Luther had uh, type 2 diabetes, and he was suffering headaches, uh, had some severe headaches a week or two prior to the actual stroke. I'm wondering, was were any of those symptoms for you as well? No, nope. But a doctor told me I have diabetes and high blood pressure combined. That's a cause of stroke, you know. You're living with type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure at the time of the stroke? Yes. How long had you been living with type 2 diabetes? Luther had it for about 20 years prior uh, before he had the stroke. I'm curious, was that something that had been recently diagnosed, or was it diagnosed after you had the stroke? After the stroke, because uh, my mother uh, suffered a diabetes, too, years and years, probably a family uh, problem, you know. But, uh, you know, control it, you know. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I think is so important for people is that, you know, Luther had the stroke and he was alone, and he had been alone for several hours before he found him. In your case, you were with your daughter, and you were able to seek medical attention right away. And I'm sure 
you would agree that made a big difference, even though this was a long and hard recovery from the first stroke. That really made a big difference with how you're able to even be with us today. Yes, indeed, yeah. I'm very grateful. Did music music play any part in the therapy for you when you were recovering from the first stroke? Uh, Well, um, after the stroke, forget all of my songs, words, everything. Only song I remember, Happy Birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good one to know. If you're going to know anyone, that's a good one to know. (laughs) How long was it from the first stroke until the second stroke? Because you made a pretty strong recovery. You must have been feeling better, and then suddenly you were shocked by a second stroke occurring. Yes, a year. Two and six, the first stroke, a second one, uh, so 2007. So many of our listeners have suffered some kind of complication, and a lot of our listeners have suffered from strokes as well. And I'm just curious um, if you could share what motivated you to come back, because this is you're exceptional. You could hear the passion and the light coming out of your voice right now over the airwaves. What would you tell people right now who just don't know if they have the strength to come back from an experience like you had? Well, after a positive affirmation helped me a lot, you know, still, you know. Louise Hay, an excellent uh, book, a study, and uh, affirmations and uh, a power of a brain, you know. I love myself and uh, I love my kidney and my heart, you know. <laughs> you know. Yeah, etc. A lot of prayer, meditation, uh, you know. Of every day, a thankful, you know, a life, a beautiful life, you know. But uh, a biggest joy, a grandmother, though. Oh, my God. So a kick. I love it. Absolutely love it. And we're going to play the third part of this interview next month in our November podcast. But right now, I'm going to flip the tables and go right to our very own Patricia Addy Gentle and kind of start to break down some of the facts and information around the symptoms and prevention for stroke since Angela Bofill and I talked about it. So I want to clear up any confusion. And certainly, if you have any questions, you could call in at 347-215-8551. So welcome to the show, Patricia. Hi, Max. Hi. You just heard that interview uh, with Angela Bofield. I'm um, curious to get your reaction. What a powerful interview. I um, enjoy Angela and her music so very much. So I am thrilled to know that she is recovering and still on the good on a good road to being better and improving every day. So that's just wonderful. But I have thoroughly enjoyed every minute of that interview. Great, and I know she was willing to do it because she, we were raising our voice to raise awareness for stroke. So let's start with the very basic. What is a stroke, and how many different types of stroke are there? Well, Max, stroke is a condition where the vessels, the arteries are affected. And these are the arteries that lead to the brain, and so we're talking about um, the causes can be because of a hemorrhage of those vessels. It can be because there is a blood clot or a blockage in the artery, 
which can lead to a hemorrhage or, I mean, it can lead to ischemia or death of the tissue um, so that the person is not getting the blood flow that he or she is supposed to be getting to adequately supply the rest of the body or the brain. And so stroke is a very serious condition, and it is the number one cause of death in the uh, at cause of death and leading cause of disability in the United States. So if that vessel is really weakened and there's a slow leak, that's also um, can be a, a, like a stroke as well. But sometimes there's a full-blown vessel that will hemorrhage into other tissue of the brain. And sometimes it's just ischemia that's transient. It comes and it goes because of a blockage or a clot. So that what I just described is like three different types of a stroke. The transient stroke is also called mini strokes. Sometimes you will hear doctors or healthcare providers refer to the mini stroke. And as we heard Angela Bofield state, she had two strokes within a year, which I found out is actually quite common. So were those mini, uh, I know there's no way to know, but when people have multiple strokes, is there a certain type that, um, of stroke that they have, or could they have any of those three together? You know, in my experience, I have seen, um, I have seen patients who have suffered many strokes over a long period of time until they have actually have a full-blown rupture. And then I have seen, um, I have seen clients who have had a massive bleed more than once, like they will have a hemorrhagic stroke and then a year or so later maybe have a bleed in another part of the body, of the brain. And so one of our Facebook fans wrote in and asked what a silent stroke is but because apparently she went and had an MRI and was told that she had had a stroke but she has had no symptoms. So I'm curious... Uh, what is a silent stroke? That, uh, yeah, that a silent stroke to? actually refers to interruption in blood flow into those um, brain tissue. So the flow is it destroys the areas in the brain where there is an interruption of flow. So, you know, all of our tissues need blood flow in order to survive. That's our nutrient. And so when the blood is not flowing, certain areas or certain cells where that blood flow is interrupted um, will have death of that tissue. And so it's the type of a stroke that does not interrupt any of the vital functions. Like some people will have uh, the slurred speech or weakness in uh, an arm or the severe headache, but in a silent stroke it's not so much that it affects any of those vital functions and the person really does not realize they've had a stroke. And the only way they do know is through an MRI or a CT scan and it will show that um, there has been some type of a interruption in that blood flow because they'll see little plaques or death of the tissue. Now we heard Angela Bofield refer to her as, as hearing a pop. Um, I'm just curious if you know if a stroke is painful or 
uh, you know, when it occurs? Are people in pain? Um, you know, I have never heard of anyone talk about pain from the stroke, per se, except that they have pain of the severe headache if there is a hemorrhage. They will have severe headache, but it is kind of like a silent thing. And have you heard the headaches being a symptom of a stroke, like a precursor that you might, as I stated in that interview, have a headache for a week or two ahead of time? Quite often. Uh, a person will complain of having uh, having a severe headache, and then some of those other symptoms may start, like a numbness or a paralysis or a weakened part of the body, maybe in the face, in the arm or leg, um, especially one side, depending on the side where the, the bleed has occurred. Sometimes there's confusion, slurred speech, um, babbled, rambling type of talking where it's not understandable. Um, you can call someone on the phone or if they call you and, and it's just unintelligible, just some type of garbled speech, sometimes blurred vision, decreased vision, or maybe trouble seeing from one eye or maybe even both eyes. But that severe headache can, uh, usually it gets worse, but it may start out as a nagging headache and that's a sign that uh, it could be a precursor to lead to stroke. So anytime a person has, you will hear people talk about, well, you know, I've had this headache for about a week, so I think maybe, especially someone who's already diagnosed with blood pressure problems, they will know that that's a time that they probably need to take action and check and make sure that their blood pressure is well controlled. And now I want to talk about the last part of my conversation with Angela Bofield and the fact that she uh, didn't find out she was living with high blood pressure or diabetes until she had the stroke. Have you ever heard that before? I, I know, I'm assuming you have, because so many times in our work together with Diva Bedded, we have heard stories of people having a health crisis and then finding out uh, different diagnoses. But I am curious to get uh, your response to that, like how common it is and uh you know, why you think that happened? Well, I have, and it happens way too often, more than it should, uh, that diabetes has gone undiagnosed or high blood pressure has gone undiagnosed. And um, I, I can say that a few years ago, each year you will hear new standards or the American Heart Association has come out with a new standard for blood pressure management that, you know, the top number should be a certain number and the bottom number. But but we change that based on statistics and based on the facts and the science of having people um, suffer strokes or suffer complications over and over again. The same with diabetes. Diabetes um, now has that number of 126 as being the number where we were actually diagnosed and we have the pre-diabetes at 100 or, or greater. But years ago, those weren't the numbers that we looked at as the standard. That was not the hallmark for diagnosis. So many people had diabetes and didn't know they had it. And then sometimes what would happen as well is that it was not a lack of medical care. It was not a lack of having that physical exam, but 
when we have clients come in fasting, sometimes the fasting blood sugar just does not pick up that blood sugars have been high over a period of time. When they come in fasting, perhaps you get a normal blood sugar, but that's not um, what that's not common. That's not what that patient always has. It's not always normal. It just happens to be the time of the day or the situation when it was tested. And so now we look at the A1C as well as one of the diagnostic tools in um, diagnosing diabetes. So, yes, the numbers have changed, and we are more strict and more aggressive in treatment. We're diagnosing earlier, but before that early diagnosis was being given, a lot of people would have high blood pressure or would have uh, diabetes and go undiagnosed for a number of years. And it's, it's difficult to say how long a person has had diabetes or high blood pressure, but when there is wear and tear on the vessels over a period of time, and that happens with both diagnoses, because of the high sugar levels, it increases the pressure in the vessels because of the thickness and the stickiness of the blood that's flowing. And also, when the blood pressure is high without diabetes, you still have increased pressure in those vessels over time. And so with both those conditions, stroke can occur, and that may be the only reason a person actually gets a diagnosis is once something, um, some type type of catastrophic health crisis arise, arises. Good information, uh, Patricia. Thank you for sharing that. Straight ahead, we're going to hear an amazing recovery story from a stroke survivor, our very own Catherine Schuler. But we're going to get to the music, uh, back to the music for a minute. You know, Angela, both of you all mentioned her good friend Valerie Simpson, and both Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson um, offered this song entitled Rough Times for her debut album. It's funny that it was written 30 years ago because the message is still so relevant today. Here's Rough Times, um, Rough Times by Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson, courtesy of Sony Music. show that 10% of patients recover almost completely, 25% of stroke patients recover with only minimum impairments, 40% of patients experience moderate to severe impairments that require special care, 10% of patients with strokes require 10, uh, excuse me, require long-term care, and 15% of stroke patients die shortly after. 
Well, we're really proud to have uh, an honor to bring on our next guest, Catherine Schuler. Catherine suffered a stroke uh, nine back in 2009. Welcome to the show, Catherine Schuler. Thank you, Max. I'm just sitting here reflecting and, and having such an incredible feeling of gratitude. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 2009. It was World Diabetes Day, right? <laughs> My time could not have been... Worse or better? I don't know how you want to look at it. But and what happened? Was, Tell us a little bit about your what, yeah your it, stroke you know, story. Yeah, everybody has a different stroke story. I was just listening to Patricia Addy Gentle, and I'm um, she's got uh, she. I didn't realize how much um, there was to a stroke. I had an ischemic stroke, uh, so uh, I think. What it ha- I didn't have a hemorrhagic. Like Brett Michaels had a hemorrhagic. It, it explodes in your head, and it's a burst of pain that's like, uh, uh, you know, unbelievable pain when it happens. I had no pain. Um, that's what's so insidious about strokes is that you don't even know you have them unless you have some sort of uh, loss of uh, feeling or a loss of uh, mobility or a loss of speech. Um, but what had happened was, is that I, <clears throat> I had gone down to, uh, Maryland, uh, for a divabetic show, uh, and we drove down and we did the show and then I turned around and came back and, um, I didn't stand up. I didn't bike. I didn't walk enough that day and a clot formed in my leg and, um, traveled up through my heart. I had two holes in my heart, which I didn't know, and uh, lodged in my brain. So uh, stroke is actually a brain attack. So it attacks the left side of my brain, which controls the right side of your mobility. So uh, I was packing a car for our last and final performance of Divabetic at the Riverside Church. And I was all dressed up with, you know, my garment racks and my car, packing it up. And I fell down with the garment racks and the garment racks went everywhere. And I, I said, I didn't, I didn't trip. I just fell. What happened? Um, so I, I, I went to gather up the, you know, get my glasses. I saw my Fendi glasses over there. <laughs> I was like, I gotta get those Fendi glasses. And I couldn't move. I was completely paralyzed on my right hand side. And uh, my husband was coming down the stairs um, after me, bringing some stuff to pack in the car, and he saw me lying there, and, you know, he tried to get me up, and I fell over. I, I had, I, it was like almost like the right side of my body was completely log-like. It just, I had no mobility and just was completely dead. And uh, he tried to sit me up. I fell over, stand me up. I, I, I fell down. And he was very panicked and I could see he didn't know what to do. And he was trying to do the best he possibly could. But I, I kept saying to myself, I'm having a stroke. And I said to him, I'm having a stroke. And I said, well, that's good because I can speak. And um, just then the cop cars pulled up and he looked at me and he said, you got to get up. The cops are here. (laughs) And um, he didn't want to get deported or something. He's Italian. And I said, I, Stefano, I can't get up. I can't get up. And um, so they called the um, the hospital. They they called nine one one, 
and um, you know they got me an ambulance immediately. I think it was 8:45 by the time I got to um, Presbyterian uh, Hospital, New York Presby, and uh, I I got checked in, and the trauma team was perfect. I mean, the protocol at Presby is amazing. They they're trying to assess what it is that where the where it is in your brain and how how many um, motor skills or uh, functions the 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 clot has actually taken out. Um, the stroke has actually taken out. So um, I, they asked me to speak. I could only say exactly. I really couldn't um, form a thought in my head. Uh, but I was panicked, you know, because I was like, I, I knew everybody was waiting for me up there, and I really needed to get up there to to, to do the show. And uh, I just, I you know, I was really concentrated on my my responsibility. And then I suddenly realized I was really in trouble because. Uh, they were, I mean, I had teams of doctors and teams of, of nurses around me and, um, they, they took me in to, um, assess me, uh, and they gave me this TPA, which is tissue plasminogen activator, which is why Luther, when he was lying there behind closed doors, he couldn't get that. You have to get that, uh, clot busting drug within three hours. And if you don't, it takes over. It just spreads like a spaghetti jar that broke on the floor. The 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 the, the clot just takes over your brain, takes out more and more and more functions. So it only was able to take out my mobility on the right side, um, so it never spread. So they put that clot busting drug in my brain, and immediately my hand was all clenched up in a fist, and I was able to open it. And I remember saying to the doctors, can I run up to Riverside Church because I just need to check and see if everything's okay. And everybody turned around and said, you're not going anywhere. (laughs) You know, but um, I have to interrupt you, Catherine, because someone listening is going to think that this woman did not have a stroke. (laughs) And, you know, I was there. I came to see you. I was at Riverside. I was when we got the the call that you had had a stroke. And um, I want to talk about the recovery because I know that even though we hear you today and we hear how well you speak and, just your cognitive response, there were a couple stumbles in your recovery, and I want to talk a little bit about that because um, I, I think people will be interested to know, as we heard with Angela Bofield, just what the recovery process was like. So tell us a little well, bit about that. Yeah, for me, um, it was a, it was over Thanksgiving, so I had my stroke on November 9th. So um, I was in the hospital for three weeks, and um, that's, that seemed like eternity to me, but then I realized there are a lot of other stroke, um, you know, survivors who have been in the hospital for months. So I was lucky in that it had, um, I had two holes in my heart and I had a clotting gene. They did um, DNA testing and I have a clotting gene. So I had the um, predisposal uh, uh, to throw a clot. So that's why when I, uh, drove down to Maryland and didn't stand up and exercise or, or move my limbs enough, that's what happened. It wasn't a DVT. It was just an actual moving clot that had formed. But my recovery was such that I had to learn to walk before I got the operation on my heart to close the holes because I found out that I had two PFOs, it's Peyton's 
four-minute ovale, which is PFO, which is holes in your heart. I had them since birth. So I literally was a walking trifecta with the, the clot and, you know, the, the, the holes and, uh, you know, my um, uh, inability to understand or know what was going on, uh, you know, it really prevented me from, uh, I, if I had known the DNA, I'm, that's why I'm trying to say the DNA testing, if I had known that ahead of time, I would have known I had a predisposition for clots. And then I would have been able to be on blood thinners, but I didn't know that at the time. It's like when when um, Angie went into the the hospital and found out she was diabetic and had high blood pressure. I found out after my stroke, after they did the diagnosis, that I had the um, the PFOs. So they had to close the holes with these umbrellas. But in the meantime, I had to learn to walk. So. Um, it was a it, it was tough because my recovery was such that um, I I needed to get the insurance to cover me before I had the before I had the um, uh, uh, the operation. So they usually do the operation and then you have the the uh, rehab. But I had to do it before that. So they had to understand that I had to get the the, the holes fixed after I learned to walk. So but I had. Thank goodness for you, Max, because you came the the day I was in ICU, and you said, "I'm going to get you Luther's um, uh, um, rehab people." And I said, "He was at this hospital," and you said, "Yeah, this was the very hospital that they brought him to." So you went down, and Tammy Nonan was there, and Crystal, and you hooked me up with them, and they were fantastic, and. Um, they, uh, you know, I, I just remember Tammy breaking down walking. She, she took walking and broke it down into step and strength and reach and balance. And I was like, oh, my God, it, there's so much more to walking than I thought. But um, I, you know, had to do the, 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 the exercises. And, you know, because I'm in Divabetic, I, I, I looked like a diva when I was in rehab. I did my makeup. And I had a really cute jogging suit, and I had the Glamour Fearless T-shirt on. And um, the, everyone treated me differently because they knew I was proactive about my care. And I noticed a lot of people were very, very despondent, very depressed, um, but they were a lot older than I was. I was 55 when I had my stroke, so I um, was a lot younger than, you know, the people that were in rehab. But um, I, you know, they they do a lifestyle approach there. So they, they have you um, hanging pictures, cooking, you know, having, having, you know, the, the uh, exercises that you have to do. And I had the Wii that was the, um, uh, the uh, I guess it was a kind of a, a interactive uh, TV that I uh, played tennis and I played golf. And <laughs> it was, I was like, all you also, well, I, I want to ask you was it uh, about maybe if, if there was any frustration because before the stroke you had been on TV doing a lot of fashion segments for shows, and I remember after yeah. the stroke you weren't really comfortable with the idea of doing TV interviews because of aphasia, and I was wondering yeah. if you just kind of explain what that was, and, and were there moments of frustration and just uh, agony on uh, when you look back at it? Yeah, it was, you know, I, I always kept saying exactly, exactly. That's the way I, I couldn't think of anything, and I would just fill it in with that. 
uh, word. And, you know, they would always make you say Episcopal Methodist and, you know, make you say things that were very difficult and tongue twisters. But in terms of like cognitive function, it's like I couldn't think of the thought and then it would come into my speech. And it was, um, and it didn't matter if there was a teleprompter there, if I had cards, um, reading it, I just couldn't get the words out. I, I can't expect, it's almost like there's a stoppage or a blockage between what you know you can do and what you're trying to say. Uh, and I just remember writing a lot and um, just reading, reading out loud, just reading from books and just reading. And I, I know I, I had a great speech therapist. I mean, Columbia Presbyterian is I mean, I I could have been in Boca del Torres hiking in Panama four months before and had, had been medevaced to a Panama hospital with heparin. But no, I had my stroke and I got to go to the best hospital in the world and get the best. Um, I kept telling myself, I can do this, I can do this. The doctors were wonderful. And I they were diagnosing me and I found out why why I had the stroke and I knew what to do. And I had just lost 43 pounds because I had gone to an endocrinologist who had diagnosed me with prediabetes. So I remember him saying, aren't you glad you didn't have that extra 43 pounds on you? And I think probably when you have those complications like Angie did and, you know, you have complications, then you you get into problems where um, it's it's kind of a layer that that the stroke causes, and you can't you have less recovery you know you have less success with your recovery. Um, but I was so grateful that I didn't have diabetes, I didn't have uh, high blood pressure, and uh, I was able to get the holes repaired in my heart, and I was able to go on blood thinners and. Um, you know, I, I haven't really changed my diet cause I always kind of, once I learned how to eat more plant-based and, you know, be a better eater than a perfect eater, um, you know, and keep exercising. That's really part of it. I still am not on blood thinners. I elected not to go on Plavix and Lipitor because I saw all the side effects. So I take more natural supplements. And it's just my choice to do that because, you know, the doctors um, are very maddening. They should should talk to the doctors about. Final question. How did the stroke affect you spiritually? I mean, now, nine years later, did it, how, not physically now, but I just want to know, like, did it change your perspective on your life? And what kind of inspiration can you share with some of our listeners tonight who, um, might have suffered a stroke or are dealing with another complication related to diabetes to help them get through today and keep going and fighting. Yeah, it's it's really, I'm so grateful that I had Divabetic in my life because it taught me about positivity and about I had a stroke, it didn't have me. And uh, I I was able to find that part of me that was grateful that I, I called it my lucky stroke and I found that I um, appreciated moving. I appreciated speaking. I appreciated singing and getting all my faculties back 
that um, so much that I can't, I, 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 I am grateful every single day. So it has caused me to um, want to do more uh, for the rest of my life, you know, and to leave a legacy. And I did a lot of stroke talks with Arthur and, you know, we, because I didn't look like I had a stroke. And I said, how, how is anybody going to know I had a stroke? And they said, that's the point. We want to show people that if they get, if they go and get, if they have anything wrong with your body, go get medical attention. Don't go up and lie down and think it's going to pass because a stroke does not hurt, Matt. My stroke did not hurt. It just simply left me paralyzed. But, you know, my, my husband was saying, oh, it's just a cramp. It's going to pass. Come and lie down. And I said, how am I going to get up the stairs to lie down? <laughs> you know? So I was, I, I, I learned FAST. I knew I was having the stroke. And I told my husband, I told them, call the, you know, call 911. Call the paramedics. Call, and I need to get to the hospital. So I just tell everybody, I don't care if you have a tingle or if it's a headache or if something's wrong, if your lip is drooping or your speech is blurred, it's not going to pass. You have to get it taken care of because it could be a, you know, a, a mini stroke like Patricia was talking about. Um, it could be a TIA. Go. It's better you know. Go and know. Right. And uh, well, so it just left me with tremendous amount of gratitude and uh, passing on the, the knowledge that I gained. Hello, I'm so grateful to you. I mean, to, to explain this whole story to people, they would think it was a movie about how things went, but uh, that's for another day. <laughs> In the meantime, that was amazing inspiration. We're going to take a quick break with some more music and then meet our final guest on the show tonight. But Angela Bofield's first chart hit was a broken-hearted ballad written by Glenn Guthrie, previously recorded by British singer-songwriter Linda Lewis and pop legend Roberta Flack. Uh, Angela Bofield scored her biggest success with this tune out of the three. Here's uh, This Time I'll Be Sweeter, courtesy of Sony Music. Darling, can't you see what losing you has done to me? I'm not the same girl I used to be. Have a change of heart. Don't leave me dead. as I love hearing Catherine uh, Schuler speak, you know, uh, when I go back to that time, 
it's just incredible for me to think that uh, she was working with me at Divabetic. It was national. It was World Diabetes Day, excuse me. We were presenting my outreach program, which is a national program entitled Divabetic Makeover Your Diabetes. We have been to eight major cities. Uh, we have decided to come back to New York City and present the show at Riverside Church, where we hold Luther's Memorial. I had dedicated my life to working in diabetes after Luther had a stroke, and mainly because when uh, Luther had the stroke and I brought him to the hospital, that I came home and at night every TV was saying that Luther Vandross had a stroke, but no one was relating it to its, uh, his diabetes. And I just felt like, wow, if I had known that there were symptoms and signs like Catherine and uh, and Patricia just said, what would have, what in my life would have changed? And then to have someone who I regard so highly as Catherine Schuler have a stroke and get the phone call while I'm doing an outreach program in honor of Luther, it was a little bit, um, it was a lot to take in. And then she went to the hospital that Luther was at, and thankfully I was able to connect her with more people, and it, it just goes on. But I, that's enough of my story, again, the best part of that story is you just heard Catherine Schuler. That happened in 2009. That woman is remarkable. My next guest is remarkable, too. I'm so happy that I've got to work with her so many times in the Philadelphia area with Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and Divabetic. So please welcome to the show nurse practitioner and senior health educator at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Center of Urban Health, uh, Neva White. Dr. Neva White. Hello, Neva. Hey, Max. Hi, everybody. So glad to be here. Glad to hear Catherine. And, you know, Max, I was actually there at that event in New York when Catherine, when that happened. Yes. I was actually there, so I remember that vividly. Yeah. You know, and it it just really tells you that, you know, like I just said, like a lot of people hear someone has a stroke, but then we don't really hear anything past that about what it could be mm-hmm. related to. A little bit earlier, um, Patricia was talking a little bit about hypertension and blood pressure, but also, um, you know, hypertension could lead to a lot of different things. So I wanted to kind of talk to you about that because we work together so much and a lot of our listeners might be just popping a high blood pressure pill going on with their life as is, and I feel like you have one of the strongest messages around that to tell them. Yeah, actually, um, you know, I was just talking to my class. Um, I just got finished doing a virtual diabetes class. And, you know, I was just telling them, you know, when you have high blood pressure, the heart just works all the time, and your heart's not getting any rest. And when we look at those two numbers, I personally think that blood pressure is probably one of the best non-invasive tests that we have available to us that gives us a window into how well the heart is actually functioning because we know that top number is really um, what's happening when that blood is is first being exerted through those artery walls when the heart is actually beating. And then that second number is really it's looking at the heart when it's resting between beats. So when that second number remains high, and the top number remains high, it's telling us that your heart is working all the time. And I don't think people truly understand, you know, what that what those numbers mean and how much of a, a blessing it is to have that kind of uh, technology right in our hands. 
And Neva, if you're walking around with high blood pressure, would you know it? Not necessarily. Yeah, I mean, do you remember a long time ago when they used to have those commercials on television, do it for the loved ones in your life? And they used to, and I might be dating myself now, but they used to have these commercials and it told us constantly that high blood pressure was the silent killer because there are usually no signs that you have high blood pressure. Some people may experience a headache, they might experience dizziness or something like that, but the majority of people really have no symptoms whatsoever. They just kind of either they're going for a checkup or they might even go to like a blood pressure screening and all of a sudden, you know, they get screened and their blood pressure is through the roof and they had no idea. And I just read a statistic that at age 50, people without high blood pressure have a life expectancy five years longer than people with high blood pressure. And I think a lot of times people don't realize what high blood pressure could lead to. So I want to talk with you about a couple of things that it's linked to, like kidney disease. Is high blood pressure linked to kidney disease? Oh, most definitely. And, and you know, interestingly enough, if we look at high blood pressure and what it does to the heart, and we combine that, if we if we put high blood pressure and the complications of high blood pressure, and then we put diabetes and the complication of diabetes, they're almost similar complications. Because any time we're dealing with circulation and any time we're, we're dealing with anything that has to do with the heart, the whole body has to go through and how, heart, how blood is being circulated, how it's being filtered, and, and, and what it means for the heart to have to extra work extra hard to maintain that, you know, a constant balance, particularly a fluid balance. And then think about when people eat a lot of salt, you know, how they, how the fluid shifts. So all of that is important. But here's the thing that a lot of people don't know, Max, is that the numbers have somewhat changed. And I don't know if you guys already talked about that. I don't want to repeat it if you already talked about it. Did you guys already talk about the numbers? I think it's worth we did talk about Patricia talked about it and the fact that several of these number uh, they've lowered some of the numbers because right. of what Bofield went through, which is when she had the stroke, she was then diagnosed with type two diabetes as well as hypertension. But it was after yeah. she had the stroke she was, and and Patricia was saying one of the big changes that we've seen is that the numbers have been lower uh, for di- for diagnosing diabetes as well as high blood pressure. Exactly. And, you know, we used to tell people that high blood pressure started at that top number being 140, but now we're actually looking at 130. We're giving people stage one hypertension at a top number of 130 or a second number of 80 or higher. So these were numbers that we just didn't, you know, say, oh, your blood pressure is fine, you know, 130 or 80, it's fine. But now we're saying, oh, no. That's stage one hypertension. And so as a result of that, the numbers have even gotten higher because that's almost an average blood pressure for somebody who has diabetes, particularly if they've had diabetes for years because of the wear and tear that diabetes puts on, you know, the arteries and the heart. So every organ in the body, just like with high sugar, Every organ in the body is also um, at risk when you talk about high blood pressure. So it is indeed because a silent Because you're talking about circulation, and you and I have talked about 
sexual dysfunction before, but I think it's important to talk about the eyes and sexual dysfunction related to high blood pressure when people start to try to connect the dots. There's another symptom that maybe uh, could be telling you more than just, uh, I'm not going to have a very pleasant night tonight with my partner. Mm -hmm. Actually, yeah. I mean, you know, interestingly enough, a lot of people go to the eye doctor and, you know, the the optometrist ends up really, I mean, the ophthalmologist really ends up diagnosing a lot of this because, you know, they look into your eyes and they see the beginning signs of some of these conditions and people, you know, had no idea that, you know, they just say, oh, you know, I'm having trouble, my vision's blurred, I can't see as well as I could when it could be at the root of it, it could be the hypertension that's affecting the vision loss. And then when we talk about the complications like stroke, heart failure, heart attack, all of that has its roots, you know, in high blood pressure. So, um, you know, it's it's a very serious condition that sometimes I don't think we we put our full effort in in terms of understanding it and treating it. Well, and I know that uh, Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and the Urban Health, uh, you guys work with so many patients, and you're actually making a commitment uh, to bring about more stroke prevention and more stroke care. So can you tell us a little bit about what uh, your hospital hospital organization is planning to uh, do next year? Oh, yeah. So uh, at Jefferson, we have a comprehensive stroke center, I'm sure, like many other cities. Uh, we have the Vicki and Jack Farber Institute for Neuroscience, and we're about to open the Frazier Family Coalition for Stroke Education and Prevention. And we're really going to be looking at how we can bring education into the community. I'm talking about in the churches, community centers, um, you know, all kinds of communities of faith, maybe even schools, senior centers, wherever the people are, how we can bring this information and at least have people, you know, walking around knowing what the signs of a stroke are. So when we say be fast, they know we're talking about balance, eyes, face, arms, speech, you know, and time to call 911. Like Catherine said, you know, it's time, it's a time-sensitive issue. And we're hoping to do cooking demos and, you know, everything that people need to give them the tools to prevent their initial stroke and prevent a second stroke because some people have already had a stroke and they're trying to prevent that second stroke. So we're excited about that work. And we have a pretty robust um, virtual program that we've created that's, you know, going on now in the time of the pandemic and everything. So Bright things are in the future for stroke education and prevention in Philadelphia, so we're excited. That was my final question to you. I wanted to flip the tables and just ask you, as a nurse practitioner, what, how can patients get the most out of these virtual visits, these televisits and things like that? I know a lot of people are still hesitant with going to the doctor. I'm just curious if you have any tips about how to get the most out of your televisits during COVID, because we know a lot of people what diabetes should be doing things virtually. So what I like to do with my patients is I try to ask them to gather up um, their medications, gather up their testing supplies, 
you know, their meter, at least have their meter available for the visit. And if we're having a visit and they don't have their meter, I'll wait until they get their meter, until they get their medications. Um, And I try to ask them to just uh, think up what it is that will best serve them in their current situation because some people are homebound because they are not working. Well, not homebound, but they're, you know, restricted to their homes with everything going on. So they're not able to exercise like they used to. They're not able to come and go like they used to. They may not feel comfortable on public transportation. So we try to talk about how you can, uh, you know, fit, if you will, fit fitness in your life, fit self-care in your life given your current set of circumstances. And so we try to go through where best can you put diabetes management, where best can you put hypertension self-management, you know, where best can you put these interventions in your life? I was just telling my class a few minutes ago, I said, if you're not going to the gym, I said, just think about ways that you can be more active. I said, okay, you walked up your steps, go back down the steps and walk back up the steps. If you got to get three things out the refrigerator, make three trips to the refrigerator. Whatever you need to do that's going to add more physical activity to your life, then that's what you want to do, you know, just add, 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 add in any way that you can, you know. Great information. That's why you're one of the best, and we're so happy to have you on the show and to work with you constantly. All right, Neva, we're going to take a break, listen to some more music, and come back and learn about a healthy new habit about drinking tea. But first, we're going to hear one of my favorite songs, Angel of the Night, courtesy of Sony Music. I have to tell you, if you go to look at the live album by Angela Bofield in Manila, not only does she sing amazingly, uh, an amazing version of this song, but she actually plays a percussion live. So definitely go check out that live at Manila live album by Angela Bofield. In the meantime, let's listen to Angel of the Night. When she speaks, it's like music, universal melody. My final guest, she's a tea lover who created Tessie's Tea, a company that pays homage to the wisdom passed down to her from her very own mother. Please welcome to the show Dr. Rose Hall. Hello, Dr. Hall, Dr. Rose. Rose? (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Max. How are you? I'm great. So good to have you on the show, and uh, thank you for – I know you got to hear a lot of the interviews, and uh, we're running a little bit behind tonight, so I appreciate you sticking around to tell us about your wonderful uh, line of teas. My pleasure, my pleasure. So first I want to say that I am not a medical doctor. My doctorate is in education. I am a researcher. Um, 
So, you, and, uh, go ahead. I didn't want to cut you off. Go on. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to, to say that. That was it, Max. And you, for 20 years, you were a mental health therapist and a social worker before you kind of took on this new enterprise. So tell us a little bit about uh, how you made this transition from being a, a mental health therapist to going into creating your own, becoming an entrepreneur who could be up on Shark Tank. Okay, so um, I uh, graduated in New York from Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and I used to also work for them in the Department of Psychiatry. My mom moved to Florida. My, my family ended up following my mom and moving to Florida, and I have had several jobs, you know, opportunities to serve because I think that's kind of my, my life's purpose is to help families and children that are in crisis. So I've worked with, uh, you know, the teen parent program, and it's uh, what I found is was very heart wrenching, gut wrenching, heartbreaking work, and it's very easy to burn out when you're given 110 percent to people that are constantly in crisis. So originally, I'm from Jamaica, West Indies, and I grew up drinking tea. Um, you know, all my my great grandmother lived to be 98. My uh, great grand my grandfather lived to be 107, and their thing was they would uh, as children we weren't allowed to leave the house in the morning unless we had something hot. And any ailment we had, they would go outside and pick bushes from different various plants and boil them and tell the, us to drink them. And our whatever our issues were, our ailments were, they would be resolved. And so then you began wanting to create your own blends, and you traveled in like over 10 countries kind of sourcing out teas and gaining uh, an understanding of the tea business. What was that like? Oh, that was awesome. My husband is a science teacher, and he got an offer to teach classes in Dubai. So we moved to Dubai for three years, and during that time I retired and resigned my position here in Florida and he said, honey, you're usually so involved in doing so many things. What are you going to do? I said, I always wanted to start a tea company, so I'm going to do some traveling and gain an understanding of the business at, you know, before I actually launch. So I've been to Singapore. I've been to um, Thailand, Taiwan, India, Sri Lanka. I've been all over the place. But one of my most memorable trips has to be Sri Lanka. So Sri Lanka, as you know, borders India. And um, I, when I first went there, I got in contact with some folks from the tea gardens there, and they, I got a driver to take me up into the tea gardens, which is far up into the mountains. So he came and got me about 5 o'clock in the morning. On the way up to the mountains, there is an elephant orphanage, and, of course, we stopped at the elephant orphanage. The baby elephants are, you know, chained down while they're um, fed through um, these huge bottles, and I just, it was just such an awesome experience watching the elephants. Uh, at one point, I was filming with my iPad, and one of the elephants used his trunk to almost take away my, my iPad out of my hand, almost like he was saying, what is this? What are you doing here, you know? <laughs> and we watched the elephants on the quarry, and I, I watched one of the elephants. He tripped over one of the rocks in the quarry, and I watched the other elephants gathered around him and went down on their four knees and, you know, pushed and pushed with their um, shoulder 
until he was standing again, and then they dispersed. And I thought to myself, can you imagine if human beings did that for each other? So it was just an awesome, awesome experience, you know. So I traveled, and I went to um, various tea gardens, understand how they grow them, how they clean the tea, um, how they export and import teas, and that was one of my most, you know, memorable experience was had to be Sri Lanka. And so where do you get your teas, or how do you, how do, you do you import them? Tell us a little bit about your line of teas. Yes, so we do import them from all over Asia. And our tea, um, they found out recently that there's some toxicity in the, the paper that it used to make tea bags. So our teas are instant teas. We have ginger rolled in honey, and we have mint infused with raw and processed cane sugar. And so you never need a uh, steep time. They're not leaves. All you do is add water, stir, and go. So they're healthy, delicious, and, of course, very convenient. Our teas have, like, anti, uh, of course, because ginger, you know, ginger is a wonderful root for the body. Ginger, they say, also has a positive effect on diabetes. But please check with your doctor before you make, you know, any changes to your diet regimen. So, um our ginger, of course, where it's anti-inflammatory, antiviral, it boosts your immune system, it's great for digestion, and if you have any um, inflammatory issues, we've gotten reports, a lot of reports from our customers that they had arthritis in their hands and it had a positive effect on their, diabetes, on their um, arthritis. So um, we're just really excited because uh, since we've been in business now for over a year, um, going like uh, two years, uh, we get so much positive effects. Uh, we have some people on the beach that order our tea, and they said, listen, it's just so convenient, and it's healthy, and it makes us feel good that one man said he cannot be without his Tessie's teas, that once he's down to his last two satchels, he's ready to order again. So we, because it's uh, all natural products, we vacuum seal them in um, satchels so that for, fresh, for freshness, you pour them in some water. You could have it hot or cold. We've gotten some feedback from runners and people that exercise a lot that they put them in their water bottle, shake, and drink while they're on their run, and it gives them a lot of energy. Now, what's great about our mint tea as well is that it is a natural appetite suppressant. So if you drink a cup of mint tea before you eat your dinner, you'll push away from the table a little quicker because it'll give you that full feeling. So we've gotten positive reports from customers having to do with weight loss and drinking our um, mint tea as well. I mean, it's good information. I want to know, um, I want to circle back to what you were talking about at the beginning about just how, you know, stressed you were at your job. Obviously, a lot of us are stressed out with everything that's going on right now and the upcoming election on top of that. Uh, how how what kind of advice can you offer? I know your first advice would be have a cup, sit down, and have a cup of tea. But I'm just curious what you would offer as advice to anyone who's kind of feeling stressed out as they drink their cup of tea tonight. Okay. So being a mental health therapist, you know, and a social worker for over 25 years, um, people are usually stressed out over things they have no control over. So that's the first thing. People need to realize that over 90% of the things that we're concerned about, that we're stressed about, 
we don't have, first of all, they never, a lot of times they don't come to fruition. They don't come true. So all that stress was in vain. The second thing is we can't be stressed about things that we have no control over because it's futile. So what I do with our patients is I have them write whatever they're upset about, whatever they're angry about. I have them write it and read it to themselves and then get rid of it. So either they could tear it up or burn it or do whatever they need, flush it, whatever they need to do with it to kind of get it out of their system. Because sometimes they just need to kind of say it out loud. The stress is building out because they have never verbalized it. So it needs to be verbalized. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it can be in private. If you need to say to somebody else, somebody that you trust, you can say it to them or read your letter to them and then get rid of it. It's kind of a renewal you know, renewing your spirit, okay? I had this stuck in my mind that was bothering me. I'm going to finally get rid of it. So that has worked a lot for people. And the other thing is meditation. I do a lot of meditation. Sometimes we need to sit calmly, quietly with ourselves. Um, My husband and I, when we were in um, Sri Lanka, we went to a meditation retreat. And I, uh, the gentleman who was the, um, the Buddhist monk, we asked him, I asked him a question because it was a great experience. You got uh, an opportunity to sit with the Buddhist monk and ask him any question you have. So I said a lot of times when I sit to meditate, all these other thoughts are coming into my head. How do I calm my mind so I can meditate? And he said, I want you to treat it like you're sitting on a highway. He said, if you were sitting on a highway, and all the cars are going by. You're sitting there watching the cars go by. Are you going to try to stop and engage each car, or are you just going to observe it going by? So he said, act like your thoughts are the cars. Observe them going by, but do not engage them, and that will help to calm your mind, and it actually does work. I think it's, I, I love that. I think it's great advice. You know, you I imagine you were a social worker, so I want to, uh, in the last 30 seconds of this, I want to ask you, I know it's, uh, we never talk about this, it's totally off the cuff, but it is just, it is Domestic Violence Awareness Month in October, and I know it's a time when people mourn the victims, celebrate survivors, and try to have a network of change. I'm assuming that you have dealt with people who've done that. I know from reading the headlines in the paper that COVID has actually uh, been kind of a curse to domestic violence because people aren't seeking the help they need at this time. So I'm just uh, curious your thoughts on that, if you could direct people to a resource around that. Absolutely. So it's, uh, oh, it's, I always say to my husband, although I've retired from social work and counseling, people call me all the time. And recently, maybe around two weeks ago, this gentleman owns a shop. And um, one of his workers, she came in and she was, you know, uh, visibly, you know, beat up. Uh, her eye was swollen. And he talked with her. And a friend of his uh, said, you know, you really need to call Rose Hall. So the major thing about domestic violence is that people do not want to report it. They're so afraid of repercussions from the abuser that they, they don't or that person is helping pay their rent or maintaining their lifestyle that they're afraid to report it. But uh, there are a lot of organizations that are available for domestic violence. And one of them that I have worked with for over 20 years is Women's in Distress. And there's a Women's in Distress. Uh, you can look it up in local phone book. 
There's one in every state. You call them. They will help you financially find a place. They will offer you counseling. They Not just individual, but also family counseling. If there are any children involved, they will relocate you. Whatever the issue is, and it's at no expense to you, they will you know, help to find you employment, and you'll no longer be listed. They will definitely help you find some place that the only way the abuser will ever have your information again is if you give it to them. So um, women's in distress, as well as a lot of the mental health agencies that are locally uh, available in the cities. But um, once again, uh, the woman or whoever you know the the, uh, the victim is has to report it for them to get help, and that's the major thing. I want to stress that people really have to report it because there is help available, but you, that's the only way to access it is to first admit that there's a problem. Great information. Thank you for doing that. It wasn't planned, but it was important, and I, I want to make sure we took a moment. Uh, I want to thank all my guests for tuning in tonight. Don't miss Steve Beck's Diaries Late Night Podcast next month when you get the third part of my interview with Angela Bofield. In the meantime, check out Diva Beck's Facebook pages and Mr. Diva Beck's YouTube channel. We're going to close the show with Angela Bofield's inspiring song, Children of the World. Now, remember, every diva has an entourage, including Angela Bofield, and I'm so glad to be part of yours. Let's get happy and stay healthy together. Thank you all for being a part of the show tonight. Thank you, Max. Forgetting about